fundamental changes have been a shift from customer acquisition as the primary focus to customer retention and reactivation, which is a fundamental paradigm shift in terms of who are your important partners, where are dollars going, where is bandwidth going. And then what results from that, at least for a meaningful number of operators, is more of a focus on product. Hey, this is Jesse here with episode 75 of the Betting Startups podcast, which happens to be our first quarterly investor vibe check, where we chat with three industry investors to get their perspective on the landscape from their side of the table. This debut vibe check for Q2 features Chris Grove, Davis Catlin, and Wayne Kimmel, and it's a banger. The discussion explores where we're at today, opportunities and challenges for companies in the space, and what lies ahead. I hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. But before we get started, I know it's the middle of the summer still, but I wanted to send out a save the date. The much-anticipated iGaming Next New York event returns March 6th and 7th, 2024 in a new state-of-the-art venue in Manhattan's Financial District with over 1,000 senior delegates expected to attend. The summit's focused on connecting startups with investors and operators with suppliers, which makes it the conference where serious business gets done. Limited tickets are available at super early bird rates starting on August 1st, which you'll find at www.igamingnext.com. And by the way, the conference sold out each of the last two years. So get your tickets ASAP and I'll see you there. All right, we are back with episode 75 of the Betting Startups podcast. And though number 75 isn't technically a milestone number, we did want to do something a bit different for it. So we're trying something new here. As you probably know, the weekly series features founders and entrepreneurs who share windows into their journeys as they try to disrupt the industry in their own unique ways. And more often than not, those journeys involve raising capital from investors that see potential in the opportunity. But the fundraising journey is a beat unto itself. And it's one of the more grueling aspects of building and scaling a startup, particularly when the environment has challenging dynamics as it does today. So to help share some perspective from the other side of the funding table, I'm really pumped to welcome a panel of highly respected and successful industry investors to the podcast for our first ever investor vibe check. Joining us for this are three names that every industry founder undoubtedly knows, so they barely need my introduction. But in the off chance that this extremely niche podcast finds its way to a non-industry audience, I'll quickly go around the horn for a round of introductions. We'll go alphabetically by first name. So Chris, over to you. Sure. Thanks, Jesse. Uh, Chris Groom. I've worked in the online gambling industry for the last 20 or so years. Last four or five, I've spent most of my time and energy focused on investing within that industry. I've worked as an angel investor. I'm a partner at Eilish and Krejcik's venture firm, and then also a partner at Akia's investments. Across those vehicles, I'm invested in roughly 50 companies spanning all types of vertical shapes, sizes, potential, and uh, and outcomes. But appreciate you you having me on for this episode. I think 75, by the way, is most definitely a, a milestone number. You've set the milestone number bar too high if 75 <laughs> isn't clearing it. Davis Catlin, uh, managing partner at Discerning Capital. I spent the last 16 years now being an institutional investor in the gambling space, primarily in the public market. So as a big shareholder of big public companies, I went in-house at Las Vegas Sands for a little over a year, leading their digital investments are. Um, we made a few investments that are now kind of public knowledge there, but me and my business partner left in October, uh, David Williams to launch Discerning Capital, and we are in the middle of our own fundraise. So I've got all sides uh, covered in terms of fundraising market. 
but so we are, we're getting to market. We expect to announce our first deal, hopefully in the next few weeks. Awesome. Last but not least, Wayne. Well, thanks a lot. Uh, you know, Jesse, for having me on, on your podcast. This is awesome. I mean, I guess um, maybe I'm the old guy here. I've been in the investing business for 25 years now, uh, investing in startups all across um, multiple industries in the last seven years, focused solely on the sports betting industry and overall sports tech world. And, you know, here at 76 Capital, we're all about getting behind, you know, smart and nice entrepreneurs who are truly doing the next, next thing across the world of, of the sports industry. And we're really excited to, to be an investor today. Uh, we've invested out of two funds um, solely in the sports industry over the last four years, um, have a number of companies, a number of companies that have been acquired, as well as companies that are some of the industry leaders today and excited about you know, talking about all this with you today. Awesome. Well, appreciate you guys joining here. Let's just start with a bit of a temperature check. You know, we can point to any number of data points or anecdotes, but I guess one thing I'll draw upon to kick off the conversation is some recent data from Crunchbase and PitchBook that showed for Q2, global venture funding is down around 50%, which mirrors the broad first half funding year over year as well in 2023. I'm curious from each of you kind of, you know, as you're out there having conversations, like what are you seeing and hearing in those conversations, you know, in the capital markets It either sort of, I guess, confirms what the data is telling us or maybe, um, you know, challenges it a little bit from your perspective. Um, and whoever wants to go first, please, uh, please go ahead. Now, look, I'm happy to take a stab at that. I mean, I think from, from my perspective, the good companies are still getting funded. Um, you know, fortunately, we have some, some, some really great companies in our portfolio that have done fundraises over the last 12 months. Um, and are continuing to to build their business today. I mean, the overall sports industry is growing. I mean, the kind of statistics that I'm I'm sure we we could all you know spout out is you know for what's happening in the overall sports betting world. I mean, the fact that we've we've had over 220 billion dollars bet in the legal sports industry, in the legalized sports industry, you know, over the last five years is incredible. And 100 million of that within the last you know year. So like things are really on the up and up across the sports betting world. The opportunity for companies that are doing the next, next thing in sports tech, data and analytics, there's a big opportunity there. And, and those kind of companies, the really good ones are getting funded and some of them are also being acquired as well. Well, that might segue nicely, uh, Chris, over to you. I mean, just this morning, uh, we all woke up to an announcement that Entain has just acquired Angstrom Sports. So just to Wayne's point about companies still getting acquired, uh, that is indeed the case based on that release this morning. And obviously Angstrom, uh, one of your portfolio companies. So congratulations on that. You know, anything you agree with there based on what Wayne said or anything, uh, you know, you sort of see differently based on your view of the landscape? Well, look, to Wayne's point, the underlying opportunity becomes more and more real and more and more substantial with each passing day. So that's something that we didn't have in place three, four or five years ago when folks did rightly or wrongly material questions about the actual scope of the opportunity and, and the durability of the opportunity. I think you have some headwinds as well. All this is a bit of a, a relative matter, right? If you had asked everyone back in November how big they thought that dip was going to be Q2, Q3 of the coming year, I think a lot of people would have taken the over on 50%. So while we have seen a dip, while there are, I think, some other material headwinds, including a little bit of an enthusiasm lag, especially for non-endemic investors when it comes to the, the gambling opportunity. I think as Wayne has pointed out, there are a number of tailwinds and good companies with reasonable opportunity and a clear ceiling in terms of valuation 
are still getting funded. As I know, we'll discuss later, what investors are prioritizing is something that's shifting dramatically and, and in some ways may be the more tectonic shift than the absolute amount of capital that's available. Yeah. If I'll just pick it up from right where Wayne and Chris left it, I think there's at a macro level, there's something that there's a couple of things that have changed as it relates to private funding. And I'd say specifically, um, one is interest rates are no longer zero, right? So it's easy to underwrite deals to a 10% return conceptually when rates are zero. But now that I think treasuries are somewhere around five, 6%, something like that, that 10% deal looks a lot less attractive. So I think that does naturally kind of take people's willingness to take risks down. Um, and the other thing that, that we're seeing a lot of is at the alley. So there's kind of allocators give, give groups like us money to pass to companies, right? So looking upstream from us to those allocators, what we're hearing a lot about is something called the denominator effect. So if you are running a large institution or state pension plan or whatever it might be, if you think about your allocations of capital, got to meet 100%, right? You have some in cash, some in stocks, some in bonds, and some in private equity venture capital. The interesting thing is when the stock market falls over, that's reflected right away. But what isn't marked to market right away is say the venture capital where, where all of us play. And because that's not written down, but the public liquid things are, it looks like you are now over allocated to venture capital. They all know that's not true. But one of the things we're seeing out there is lots of rounds that are kind of flat rounds occurring and not just our industry, but others, as people play kick the can on the valuation write downs. And so I think one of the key things that we need to see is some of the market, not just in our industry, start taking those write downs, admitting what hasn't worked, such that we can get that funnel open from the allocators down to us so that we can allocate um, more efficiently to the companies. But I think that's sort of an interesting macro concept that I, I, when I explain it to founders, they often don't think about our sources of capital. They just think we kind of were magically showed up with it one day. Awesome. And then despite the data showing us that there is a slowdown in new funding, I mean, the reality is VC funds are still sitting on record amounts of dry powder. So the slowdown isn't necessarily for a lack of available capital, but it does tell a bit of a story around investors maybe being a bit more selective in their investments. Um, I'm curious, again, from each of you guys, you know, is there any adjustments you've made to your capital allocation strategy over the last 12 to 18 months? I mean, maybe any changes to your thesis, uh, focus areas or otherwise? wouldn't necessarily say that we've had any changes to our thesis per se. Again, if the industry is in a slightly different place than it was a year ago, equally different place than it was two years ago, and a material different, materially different place than it was three years ago. So you're, you're always making those subtle adjustments along the way. But to Davis's point, it's important, I think, for companies that are out there fundraising to realize that it's not just funding. And that's a broad brush and everyone within that group should be thought of the same, treated the same, approached the same. But you take a fund like Akia's, we're definitely moving out of the phase of initial allocation and more of a focus on the 20 or so investments that we've already made and on continuing to support those companies as they raise subsequent rounds. Whereas firms like Davis's that are earlier in their life cycle are going to be more heavily distributed on writing new checks as opposed to follow-ons or operational support of those companies. Not a direct answer to your question, but just a reminder for folks who are out there fundraising, there's the macro that covers everybody. And then there's the micro context surrounding each individual funding source. And it's important, I think, to get as much of a grasp on that micro as you can before you go in and, and pitch a particular funder. 
Yeah, that's right. Um, Chris is right on again, as usual. Um, the only thing that I, I might add is like, so like procedural changes. You know, I do think that there's certain parts of this market that have become more attractive. Um, and that's, I think everyone this call would agree that reg tech is an area that continues month by month to grow in importance. And, and I think that's around the sustainability of the industry. It's also an attractive model. So I think that something like that's probably picking up and, and more moving away from the commodity. I think a lot of industries as they move from kind of the initial phases or might be multiple groups of the same idea. I think we're probably hitting a point where the, the winners are beginning to emerge. And I think if anything, that will be an interesting, I think actually Angstrom is a good example of this, right? That is a company that I think was really powerful, really interesting tools and data analysis and great team, right? As that started to emerge, it either had to raise more money um, or maybe they didn't need to, I don't know their financial situation, but you kind of get the idea. If they emerged, it was either continue to grow as an independent solution or move in house. And I think that's probably a core thesis that we're thinking about is identifying the path, the long-term path for each of these businesses. And if it's you know, there's six of us and we're competing consistently. That's probably a harder fundraise these days than, than it maybe was two or three years ago. Yeah, I mean, I would completely agree with what Davis just said. I mean, from the idea of, of from the reg tech side of the world, I mean, we were, you know, in, investors together when, when Davis was in Las Vegas Sands with U.S. Integrity um, that we originally funded. And then Akiaz also is, is now an investor in, in the company as well. So the three of us have have our exposure to, to that great company that Matt Holt and his team run at U.S. Integrity, where they work with every single league, every single operator, work with all the regulators to make sure that everything's on the up and up. And we think that's a really important part. I mean, that's, that's why, you know, it is, is, as Steve has said, it's, it's becoming more and more important because we got to make sure that, that truly, you know, the, the betters out there, when they place their bets, they know that this is, this is on, everything's on the up and up in there and everyone's doing the right thing. And, the league want that, the operators want that, of course, the regulators do, and so do the companies that, that we work with. And so it's great to have you know, really great, um, you know, teams that are out there that are doing things with, you know, like a U.S. integrity, like an odds on compliance and Eric Frank and his team. You know, it's awesome to be, you know, backers of what they're doing as well, really making sure that you know, the, the operators and everyone's, you know, no one's trying to not be compliant, but you, some, it's just hard. There's, it's, it's. It's 38 states, right? I mean, it's it's not what it used to be. It's much, much harder. It's much more complicated. The technology's not as easy. You can't just, you know, flick a switch and your 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 app isn't then updated. That's just not, not as simple as it is to doing things in other industries. And I think that's another reason why a number of investors also are are not in this industry because they really don't understand what three of us understand and and how much time and energy and you know that we've spent and and experience that we have in and around the gaming industry. I mean, this is a serious industry. We've all been licensed. We've all gone through the licensing process. I mean, that's not simple. That's not a, what a lot, of, a lot of investors want to go do. That's a great question as an entrepreneur. If you're sitting now with an investor and your business needs to be, uh, is, is going to be regulated, you should ask your investor if they actually will go through that process with you. Um, I've, we've heard, all of us have heard many times where investors have gone down the path really close to making an investment and their investors find out that they have to get licensed and they're like, nope, not me. But that's not, that's not the case for us, right? That's, that's, we understand that we're fine with that. We're okay with that. We understand how it all works. It's a really, really big, um, you know, a, a big advantage that we all have, um, against sort of the rest of the investors out there in, in the sports industry. Yeah, and as you mentioned, Chris, I mean, you know, things have been evolving pretty rapidly over the last number of years. And 
I think back to like 2008 during the great financial crisis, I think Sequoia was the one like famously put out that deck that was titled RIP Good Times, Rest in Peace Good Times, which is basically a message they were sending to their portfolio company CEOs saying, hey, like, you know, the good times are over, like buckle up, things are going to get turbulent here. And maybe to some degree, that's been the sentiment, at least in my conversations with a lot of industry founders over the last 12 months. Um, you know, some of that sentiment, I guess, is in the room right now. So curious, like from your guys' perspective, the conversations you're having with your portfolio company CEOs, any particular sort of advice or guidance that you've given to them to sort of adjust to some of the realities that are around us now? I mean, you know, the cost of capital has increased over 500 basis points over the last, what, 15 months. Um, pretty sudden dramatic shifts. Like, what are you telling your Portco CEOs to sort of help them weather whatever storms might be on the horizon here? One piece of advice I offer a lot, although it's a very tough one to to get through, just because of the dynamics of when you found a company and you you wrap up your identity in a company and you correctly have a lot of pride for what you've built and place a lot of value on what you've built, it can be difficult to adjust those expectations or, or those ambitions. But I do believe any number of younger companies, smaller companies should look to achieve scale inorganically by combining with other young, small companies. The reality is there's a consolidation in capital so only so much funding to go around. And I know we're going to talk about some of the challenges that you face if you're really looking for non-endemic sources of funding as a gambling company. Wayne just hit upon one of the primary issues, but there are others. And then there's also a consolidation in terms of your end client, your end customer, assuming that you are not a direct-to-consumer operator yourself. So scale matters both in terms of being able to attract customers uh, being able to attract integrations, being able to attract capital. And a lot of smaller companies just don't have the time or the runway that they think they have or that they expected to have to reach that scale, those milestones organically. I think there are a lot of folks out there where one company is really good at X, but missing Y, and another company is awful at X, but great at Y. Bringing the two of those together, I, I think, can be... Uh, being greater than the sum of its parts. And, and I'm hopeful that more companies, not just ours, but across the industry, will will start to adopt that few quarters ahead. Yeah, I, but just to piggyback on that, the only thing I'd add is, I think the M&A is a really important way to do that. But I think the main piece of feedback I'm, I'm giving people when I'm just meeting with companies is, you have to find a way to survive this period. And that often means raising money valuations you, you might not love, but let's just put that aside. But more importantly, it means getting your business model to be a business, right? So massive losses for five or 10 years, that's not something people are going to be interested in funding these days. So I think getting your burn as low as possible such that you can assure your survival is probably step one. Um, there's lots of ways you can do that without um, kind of hurting the long term. But I think that's a really important shift in mindset that's probably happened for investors and what we're looking for. And then I'll, I'll just use this and opportunity to make one point that I think is often lost on founders is fundraising takes a long time. And I don't just mean like finding, you know, convincing Wayne or Chris or me that you're, you know, the next um, geo comply. But I mean, it, it's just a process building the relationships, building your name in the market, getting the contract. But what the part that really surprises entrepreneurs is how long it takes from first dance to money hitting the bank. So I was talking to someone recently and they're like, you know, we, we've got six months of burn less. We're going to kick off our fundraise, in, you know, two to four months. 
It's like, okay, well, yeah. And, and how long is that going to take? I mean, it, it's, it's not like we meet and, and, you know, it's not like buying a car. You don't just drive it once and then just, just write the check. It takes time. There's lawyers. I mean, I don't know the, the actual number here, but my guess is it's probably about 90 days, probably a pretty good average from, from term sheet to close. So I just want to put that out there because I think that when you're thinking about making your business more sustainable, that's a key feature that I find entrepreneurs often are thinking through is there's just going to be a period of time at the end. And if you don't have the cash to get through that 90 days, you're not helping yourselves or, or even your investors. Yeah. And look, to Davis's point, you surrender a lot in leverage when you put yourself under that kind of pressure and you're out fundraising. Investors want to have a good relationship with you. Obviously, they also want to strike the best deal possible for their LPs. And if you've only got three months of, of burn in the bank and they know you're just kicking off fundraising, you, you have basically handed over all of the leverage to the, the other side of the table. And, and that is potentially disastrous combination. If, if you're not willing to bend on expectations, if you think things are going to happen more quickly than they do on average, and if you're visibly surrendering leverage at the outset of those conversations, that is not a recipe for a delicious cake. Well said, Chris. So look, the podcast is called the Betting Startups Podcast, uh, and a, a large segment of the audience are founders and entrepreneurs um, at the earlier stages of their journey within these industry. And I guess I'm curious, guys, like given everything we've talked about so far about the current landscape and the dynamics within it, what are some of the dimensions you would suggest founders be over-indexing on given the, the current funding environment? And Wayne, maybe we can start with you on this one. Sure. I mean, I think that as an entrepreneur today, I mean, you got to really look at what's going on out there and, and look at, you know, so say you're, you're thinking about it from a, from a technology perspective and you're looking at kind of what's, what, what could I do, right? What could I do? That's sort of the, the truly the, the new thing that's out there. And I think you gotta, you gotta start looking at other industries and start looking at, you know, as to how those industries may have, have moved forward. I think you, you know, certainly looking at from a, from an app perspective, I mean, one of the areas that we're really focused on is this idea of customization and personalization of, of apps. So we really think there's an opportunity to use, you know, the latest and greatest tech that's out there to do, to be able to, to do that. And that's where we can, you know, I guess this is the first time we're talking about AI on this budget, uh, podcast, but, but that's the buzzword, right? I mean, how is that really going to be used across the industry today? It's certainly being used by our guys at, at odds on today, today, part of their playbook. But I mean, from a, from, from a customer, from, from a customer perspective, you know, what's that experience going to be like in the future? You know, how are we going to take this industry, which is a, a very, pretty much a very flat app that's out there today. That's, I always use the example, it's kind of like Amazon, where it's like you just buy a book from, you know, and then it's going to very simply, you just punch a bet. That's kind of what you can do with one of these apps today. But when this app actually starts to know who you are, what you're about, what you like, knowing that I like the Philadelphia Eagles, knowing that I like Jalen Hurts, how does it start to present these type of things to us? Right. So one of our, one of our companies, epoxy.ai is doing that right now for a number of, of of companies out there working with a number of the, the tech players across the industry. But I think it, there's, there's an opportunity to do a lot more and really make these, these apps come to life so that it's not the same exact experience when you are at DraftKings or FanDuel or the brand new, you know, Barstool app that's now out. I mean, all these things are, they're, they're incrementally getting better, but what's the next really big thing that blows up and, and really takes this, this industry to the next level? 
And I guess, you know, sticking with the dispensing of advice to any founders that might be listening, you know, what are some common mistakes or challenges that you see startups within the betting and iGaming industry often encounter? And I guess, you know, sort of what advice uh, would you give to entrepreneurs to navigate these challenges uh, successfully? And, um, you know, yeah, Davis, to your point around uh, maybe waiting till there's, you know, 90 days of runway left before commencing a, a round. I mean, maybe not the best practice, but that example aside, any other ones that you can sort of draw upon as sort of a common theme or pattern you've seen? Yeah, I I feel like I've become a, a you know a, a broken drum on this, and I think all of us in this call will get this. But I think the legality and having a good legal opinion is really important, right? And so if you go to Chris or me or Wayne and you go, I've got this great app for crypto betting, and it's going to be cross state lines, and you know we're also going to service others. Mark, it, it's you're going to fall flat so quickly. This is an issue with lots of nuance and. You know, I know for us, um, one of the things we, we, we do and have done previously is we always have legal opinions that are independent on every company. So not just the company having one, but we look at it. And I think going in with a mindset of understanding that in this regulated industry, you've got to be on the right side of that and have that awareness that you can walk into the room and explain to, to any of us or any investor out there why you are inside the lines. And I think that's a really important one that, I, you know, it seems so simple, and yet I think it's also very difficult. And so I think having a really strong legal opinion and nuanced answer to how you fit, how you're going to, and then I guess the last part is you're legal, and also you've got a roadmap to kind of a longer term opportunity. So this touches on Wayne's concept, which I think is on the product. You know, I hate this phrase that investors use as product market fit, but it also, in this case, in our industry, it matters. If you're not moving this industry forward and you're just trying to build that, you know, like the Amazon, you're just buying it, you're just another, you know, tab on a book, that's not that good. And so I think just um, my advice is really one, focus on having a really strong regulatory understanding of your specific part of the market. And then secondly, um, having a concept of how do you get from, how do you take money from here and get to there? And why is there valuable for you and for the investor that you're talking to? Justin, your question on, on over-indexing, maybe correcting from how you might have approached a pitch a year ago or two years ago, I think applying what I'll call a realism path across the deck, maybe multiple realism passes, is good standard operating procedure for the current environment. Make sure small things that are going to be flags, especially to endemic investors like market size are actually correct, right? The chart doesn't need to be up and all the way to the right. And you do need an articulation to Davis's point of how you're going to get there. Leading the deck with sports betting is broken and we're going to fix the whole thing with this startup is this probably no longer going to get you there. The other thing that's important to remember, and I'm, I'm fortunate enough to work with Techstars as a mentor. And earlier today, we had a, a workshop for Techstars alumni that have companies that have exposure to betting. One of the points that came up in that conversation that I thought was interesting and salient. There's the macro and that's changed, both in terms of the economy and then the industry itself. And as we mentioned, there's the micro for any individual investor. And you should think about that as well. And probably tailor your pitches a bit more as well to their needs, wants, biases. But then there's also just the reality that anyone who is investing in this space, whether they're endemic or non-endemic, has just seen a lot more 
than they would have seen if you were pitching the same thing in 2020 or 2021. And so something that might have felt fresh or novel or unique or inspiring, they've probably seen that deck 5, 10, if not 30, 40 times. So realizing that that foundational view of what's new, what's fresh, what's been heard before, and how should I present things as a result, I think is another layer of that realism past. So there's the facts and then there's the presentation. Giving that pass to both of the elements of your pitch, I, I think is critical because more than ever, I want to say that investors are looking for easy no's. I think that's a persistent bias. In a world where capital has an advantage over companies in terms of an imbalance of supply and demand, that bias gets exaggerated. So whatever you can do to not give an investor an easy no, and that realism pass, I think is just one of the primary things you can do to, to knock out the most obvious ones. Awesome. Let's zoom out a little bit. You know, looking at the U.S. landscape right now, I mean, we've had a couple of new states come online this year with Kentucky as the most recent one a couple of weeks ago. But sentiment generally seems to be that that's all we'll likely see for the rest of the year. I guess through that lens with limited new markets opening up over the next little while, how do you guys think priorities might shift for operators given that market expansion might be slowing down? And if indeed, uh, you know, the priorities are shifting, what are they shifting towards? And as an extension to that, you know, what challenges or opportunities does that create for entrepreneurs in the space? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we talk about the, the opportunity across, I think, all these, these different entrepreneurs is just how much can they, they dream, right? How, how can they really think about looking at all the things that are happening out there and, and, and truly doing something that's, that's new and innovative and doing it in a way that, you know, is, is we'll, we'll truly move the market and, and, and do it. And, and I think that that's, that's the thing that we, we just have to constantly think about whether, you know, it's here, it's, it's, a, it's around the world. I mean, the, the opportunity for, you know, for an entrepreneur to do something really special and innovative is, is, is the thing that, that we love to, to find and, and, and get behind and really work with and put all of our energy and all of our other relationships that we have across you know, the, the sports world and sports betting world to help the kind of businesses we get behind. I mean, that's what it's all about for us. It's, it's the people it's finding really, really good people that we want to spend time with and want to help them build their business and, and help you know, and have them be able to, you know, be able to think about, you know, all these different things that are happening across the world. But, but for them, it's really, it's, it's for them to be the ones to go make it all happen. Yeah. I guess I'll just jump in real quick. Sorry, Chris, they're going to jump for you there, but, uh, somebody had to go. I think we are seeing, and I think it's really healthy. We're talking, I just kind of said earlier, like in the formation stage of an industry, it's everyone's rushing. There's a lot of commodity product. And now I think we've, we're moving towards a world where things like efficiency, product, user experience, all of that matters a lot more. So it depends on where, what part of the industry you want to fall into. But I, I will say probably the biggest change, and I think everyone in this call believes that sports betting will get much, much bigger over or sports betting and gambling generally wagering, right? We, we're saying sports betting, really it's, it's wagering, finding ways to engage people where there's capital at risk for fun and entertainment. I think we all agree that gets much bigger. So with that context, I think we need to get to a stage, which is, I think we're getting there where the operators are thinking about returns on their investment, right? I mean, I don't even know where we peak, but the numbers being given out in terms of promos in New York, I think everyone was looking at like, how long can this go? And thank goodness, it seems like we've stopped. And I think in this new age of thinking about returns, I think being really smart on marketing tech and what you can offer them and how you can drive either 
you know, if you're an operator, very simply, you're thinking about, you spend money to acquire customers and you generate capital out of them. As long as you're generating more profits, you've got a positive return, your business is sustainable. You might not get the returns you want, but you kind of get the idea. So I think you've either got to figure out how to lower their customer acquisition costs, which they're saying they want to do. I think MGM, by MGM just came out, just some data on that or commentary, or you're, you know, delivering incremental value on the player lifetime value. And I think that is the new phase of the industry. I think that's where all of us as investors are looking uh, through that paradigm. And I think if I was an entrepreneur, that's the kind of macro view I would have of, of where there's a lot of opportunity. The absence of new state launch is probably net positive for younger companies because it does allow operators both a little bit of breathing room. Remember those first couple of years, you were not getting an integration no matter how better of a mousetrap you would build because the only thing operators cared about was standing up the product and making sure it didn't fall down. I've got to launch in eight states this year, nine states this year, 12 states this year. And all those launches consume not just time, energy, and bandwidth, but money as well. Best thing that could have possibly happened to DraftKings is California not passing. There's no way you're seeing the stock surge they're enjoying now if California had authorized full stop. So the ability to both have a better chance of doing business with the operator, if you're a supplier, to get the attention of the operator, if you're looking for a potential acquisition, all of these are, are net positives. To repeat, maybe reiterate a little of what Davis said, fundamental changes have been a shift from customer acquisition as the primary focus to customer retention and reactivation, which is a fundamental paradigm shift in terms of who are your important partners, where are dollars going, where is bandwidth going? And then what results from that, at least for a meaningful number of operators, is more of a focus on product. Because if I'm no longer looking to just acquire, but to inspire, develop some kind of loyalty, I do need to bring a better product to the table, whether that's visible features or to Wayne's point, whether that's things like epoxy in the background that are informing how the product works, even if those things aren't necessarily as visible to the, the consumer. So I think that's where the priority shifts have been. And if you're not servicing the operator, assuming the operator is, is your ultimate end customer and acquirer, if you're not servicing those priorities, you're probably going to have a steeper hill to climb. And I think we probably touched upon this organically through the conversation thus far, but I'm curious to quickly hear from each of you guys. You know, if you take the, the landscape horizontally and, and carve it up into different verticals or categories, you know, which of those categories are you most bullish on right now? I mean, RegTech's come up a couple of times in this conversation. Uh, and similarly, what, what are you maybe a bit bearish on and, and perhaps why? I'm happy to jump in first. We mentioned RegTech. I think one of the reasons why there's so much interest in reg tech and payments, and some people will bundle those together and, and they are relatively close thematically, even if they are quite different from a regulatory and operational perspective. There are big pockets of external capital that can get behind reg tech. It has enough similarities to the financial services sector that there's a, a shared language that allows your larger capital allocators to look at that part of the industry and say, that's where I want to be. So the investment opportunities, capital opportunities, exit opportunities are much different for those components of the industry. And you're seeing that in real time with companies like GeoCompliance SiteMap. There's a reason why they're attracting the kind of capital that they're attracting, why you're not seeing 
that capital by and large flow to other parts of the ecosystem. That's because those two themes are very attractive to a very powerful form or, or sorry, a very powerful slice of non-endemic capital. I'll highlight one other opportunity before passing it along. It's a much different opportunity and I think it falls more under the challenge yet to be surmounted. My background is in poker. That's where I came up in this industry. I started off playing professionally, did that for a couple of years and then moved over to the industry side. I still have a very vivid memory of the years from call it 2002 to 2008 when poker was a cultural force in the U.S. in a way that sports betting hasn't begun to scratch the surface of, not even close. To me, central to the ability of poker to do that, putting aside the, the structural differences in poker as a game versus sports betting as a game, those are meaningful, was the ability of poker to fashion itself into an entertaining product. Whether that was something as light as a celebrity poker home game or something as hardcore as high stakes poker and everything in between, there was a content ecosystem around poker that was genuinely entertaining, even if you were incredibly casual in terms of how you approached the game. We even see more of that kind of entertainment ecosystem around casino. If you think about someone like Brian Christopher, as an example, there just aren't a lot of Brian Christophers for sports betting. People are making the underlying activity entertaining. That as a content shower, I think there's a terrific amount of upside there and a lot of defensibility there as well because of how hard that is to meet. I know we have sports betting content, but I think it tends to be more informative than it is aspirational or, or entertaining. And I think poker is a great lesson of the past that we can strive to as an industry to, to ensure that the future of sports betting as a sustainable product. Well, Chris, I, I love what you just said around, you know, an inter, sort of entertaining and, and, and sort of immediate type or even larger than that sort of product around sports betting. And it's one of the things that, you know, ever since, you know, Jesse, ever, ever since we sold VEASAN, the sports betting network that we, we started with the Musburgers and what, a, what an incredible experience that was, but we sold that company to DraftKings, but we never sort of took it all the way. And all the way was this idea where there was truly going to be the CNBC of sports betting. That we really wanted to make this really entertaining show and entertain all these shows in and around the world of sports betting. And, and certainly DraftKings has the opportunity to do that if they want to do that. So Jason, you guys you know, do what you got to do with it. But at the same time, we look at it as well as like, what is what are the next types of media type companies that could come around the world of sports that could, you know, you could really have a real channel that would be potentially like an ESPN bet, but that channel was entertaining. It wasn't just people sitting behind a desk talking about the bets like they've done in the past. How can you actually make this even more and more and even more entertaining? And I think, you know, when you think back and I think we got, I think back to like that Showtime docu-series that they did with it when they followed a couple betters walk around each you know, Bill Krakenberger and a couple other guys, Warren Sharp and a few others were, were in that. And it was just fun sort of watching them do their thing. But I would love to see that all the time, you know, where you're, you're constantly seeing not only just the betters themselves, but the operators, the overall industry, in a way, kind of like how Showtime has their, their show, The Circus, but following this industry and really giving, you know, a flavor to all the interesting and exciting, and I, I would say, likable characters across the world of sports and sports betting and gaming. <laughs> Yeah, characters is the important part there, right? That yeah. was, again, 
just central to, to the poker model, heroes and villains. That's, that's what we want as folks consuming stories. We want stories when heroes and villains are some kind of progression, even if it's more of a circle than a line. And, and we definitely don't get that. Davis, I'm sorry, I, I cut you off. No, no, it's all right. And I'm not just laughing at your uh, character. Um, <laughs> but you know, it, it's interesting. I think uh, we've already touched a lot of this. I agree with everything you're saying about content. I mean, the closest thing we've got now is some, your Twitter feed, if you're in, you know, in gambling Twitter, is some big parlays hit. Everyone's all like, you know, Bleacher Report betting or whatever puts up a funny video. But for the most part, it, it's pretty short form and it's not a consistent, it's not enough to engage. I was thinking like, could it engage my dad or my mom, right? Or, or someone that's not in this industry. And we're not there yet. So I think that's really a great point. Um, just in terms of your, your question around what's, what's got us excited and what kind of doesn't uh, as it relates to the, the industry before, I think we've already talked about reg tech on the positive side, but I think there's going to be a lot of diversification in the product, which we've all been talking about. So I think that just continues to be a theme that we're seeing. I think the, I don't know if you guys have heard differently, but I'm still hearing from companies, the integration timelines are still pretty long. So even if you've got a really positive product experience, I think that's still a harder uh, road to go down. But I think that's something we're really interested in. And can anything that allows groups to differentiate, whether it's a big, big, you know, trying to allow DraftKings to differentiate or starting your own brand that's highly differentiated, uh, which I have plenty of examples of that out there. Um, on the, you know, negative side, which the other two did a great job of not of skipping, which is always smart as an investor. You know, I just think that the things that will be interesting to watch will be the companies with the elevated valuation. And you can set that however you want. But I think, I think that that's the area, you know, if you've raised a lot of money at really big valuation, you know, I think you've either got to really deliver and execute, which would be great because for all of us on this call, if you can do that, it, it creates better, a roadmap for us to look at and go, look, you know, we can, we can get our companies there as well. But I think, you know, pricing something perfection does require perfection. And so I think that'll be the interesting thing to watch in this industry. I'm obviously cheering for everyone because again, we're all on the same team here in this industry. And, but I also think that we do run the risk with some of the valuations you see out there that, you know, if, if you don't execute perfectly, we see down rounds and, and then kind of use Chris's phrase, the endemic investors often aren't in all of those. Um, and I think that just speaks to the value of having the expertise specifically in this industry. So I'll stop there. I think I probably did an appropriate job of skirting the, the negative question. Nice. So. Look, I'm calling this episode the Q2 Investor Vibe Check. I guess within the context of Q2, obviously a huge milestone within it, which was the five-year anniversary of the PASPA repeal. And I'd be remiss if I didn't quickly ask each of you uh, a two-part question. First part being, you know, if you look back five years ago and you sort of forecasted how you thought the first five years of the regulated U.S. market would play out, you know, how has it played out relative to what you thought? And then the second part being one big prediction for the next five years. Well, oh, I had to... Uh... Hey, I had to go on the record with those uh, predictions thanks to my role at, at Islanders and Craycheck Gaming. So all my work is, is pretty public on this particular question. We thought sports betting would go fast. We actually undershot it a bit. It went faster than we thought. We thought online casino would go slow. We were more or less spot on there. And numbers-wise, we haven't really changed our, our forecasts all that much. We always believed this was a substantial opportunity relative to the overall size of the retail gambling market in the U.S. And we always thought that the, the retail guys were undervaluing that opportunity because they were viewing it through the prism of the, the Vegas casino sports book, which is more of a, a milk in the back of the store. So not much has changed on, on that front. 
the one big prediction I'll offer about the next five years is something the three of you have probably heard me say a lot already. Given the pressure on profitability on the OSB side, given the likely lack of expansion on the online casino side, I do think you're going to see the sportsbook product migrate in the direction of the casino product. I think you're going to see more and more sports betting games that look less like a traditional sports book, rows and columns, and look more like casual games, mobile games, and casino games, and seek to capture the incremental boost in participation and margin that you get when you cloak that underlying activity in a game and disconnect it from the clear ability to read through on, on price and things like that. So the casinofication of sports betting is my big prediction for the, the coming five years. Uh, I guess I'll, just, I'll, I'll go next. Um, if you went back five years ago, my analysis was all very private then, but I would say that what I probably was too low on the number of states that would legalize sports betting. I also, um, they'll probably thought the penetration and uptake in those states of the core betting offering would be higher. So I, I don't, I didn't have to create models that said exactly this is where the market is, but I think if we're being honest. I probably thought, oh, once we go live, there'll be a much greater adoption in each individual state. So that's probably the one thing I've seen. I do think uh, on Chris's point on the next five or 10 years, and I said this a little bit earlier, I think the gamblification of everything will only march forward. And whether or not that is people signing up for, you know, the latest FanDuel app that's got a, you know, a core over under on the Super Bowl, I think that'll keep growing very nicely. But I do think this social gaming sort of aspects, the ways to engage, say my mom again, or whoever you pick as the example to bring them in because people inherently enjoy the excitement and entertainment value. So if we can go from kind of offering this to offering this while being in a huge growth industry with more legalization efforts behind it, I think that's gonna be a real winner. I think the biggest question mark in my head is how fast behind it the iCasino legislature comes. And I think that's where I don't pretend to be a policy expert on a national level by any means, but I think if, if there's a lots of states offering iCasino, I think this industry is going to be extremely profitable and very big in five years. And I think if we see a real slowdown in iCasino in the next five years, we'll still, you know, it'll be a very nice growth industry, but it'll probably be less than, you know, that's probably the greatest swing factor, I guess I would say, when we'll get the next five years. I think the last five years have, have been amazing. And, and I think that, you know, it's, and, and, and everyone shot low, you know, but at the same time, we were all, all of us were very aggressive and bullish. And if we would have said 38, they would have taken us all away in straight jackets at that point. So I think like right now we did, did the best we could without being too crazy, but we were all extremely, you know, excited and positive about where, where things were going to go. And, and they've, and they've, they've far exceeded everyone's expectations. Again, engagement. Um, I, I like what you just said, Davis. I mean, engagement's not exactly where we thought it was going to be, but I still believe that it, that two or so years that we got taken away from a lot of our lives because of COVID has slowed some things down. We're, we're now obviously back and moving as, as quickly as, as ever. So I think things are going to really start to go. And I think when you look at the next five years, there'll be more and more opportunities to bet on even more and more sports. And one thing that you know I've been talking a lot about over the next five years, I believe that there's going to be a professional sports league that will have a division in Europe. So there'll be teams, you know, a team in London, a team in France, a team in Germany, a team in Spain, you know, that could be the, the NFC, the new NFC East or something like that. 
I really believe that type of global expansion uh, is something that's going to make these games even more fun and interesting for us to to want to wager on. And it's going to be you know much much more than just sports uh, as as things continue. So we're you know here at Seventy Six Capital, my partners and I are really bullish about the future and excited to work with amazing entrepreneurs who are truly envisioning what's next. Awesome. We're running up on time here, guys. But before I let you go today, one final question, a bit of a fun one. I don't know if you're going to be willing to answer, but I'm going to shoot my shot anyway here. Um, Bessemer Venture Partners uh, famously publishes its anti-portfolio, which is its way of honoring the companies it missed, right? So up, up on their website, they have logos of Apple, Airbnb, Facebook, Google, all companies they had the opportunity to invest in, but for whatever reason, they pass on those investments. Curious to ask each of you guys, are you willing to share one example of a company in your anti-portfolio um, within the context of the industry? And uh, I'll leave it open for anybody that wants to uh, jump in on that one. I also missed out on Apple and, and Amazon. <laughs> we just, uh, just didn't have a lot of conviction. Sometimes, Jody, I think the answer to this question just comes down to timing and why I say that is because otherwise it could be read as oh, we didn't believe or there was something that wasn't compelling. Most of the companies I wish we had a chance to get involved with, the, the timing, size, stage just, just didn't line up, right? And I want to make sure I wrap that context around before I offer my answers. Uh, Sports Grid is one that I've long been a massive fan of and have just never had the, the timing line up in terms of the opportunity, the ability to participate. And then Alt Sports Data is another company that I think is really compelling. But again, size, stage, and, and time have, have just, at least to this point, not lined up. I'm, I'm optimistic that for both, uh, the, the door will open at some. Uh, I mean, it's a little bit different for me, just given that we are in the process of launching our fund. So I wouldn't want to roll one out. My hope is that anything I feel like I missed previously, I you know, still have a shot at it. Like, Say their name here. The price just went up twenty five percent. So, but I, I think you know. I think I think Chris is right. It's how many times, you know, so much of of this business is about relationship. Just generally speaking, so it's it's interesting. Sometimes to Chris's point, like there's a founder was texting me this morning. It's a little earlier stage, but I hope to God that his business gets big enough so that I can partner with him when he hits our strike zone, which is you know we're trying to do companies like between three to twenty million just to put that out there in revenue. So. We're trying to avoid kind of seed phase. We're trying to catch them as they're scaling. But, you know, I think that's sort of what I would say is I think for us, I'm hopeful that we're going to get to work with all these entrepreneurs in the future. So that's a great, uh, it's a long way of saying the non-answer. You know, one of the ways that one of the things that we've done here at 76 Capital over the last several years, actually three years now, was we started our 76 Capital Sports Advisory business really for this type of reason. So when the timing may not be right from a startup perspective, is what we like to invest in here at 76 Capital is when companies are first starting, but it's in a company's a little later stage and they would like to work with us and we would like to work with them. That's where our advisory company comes in and Dan Bravado and his team there will go in and consult and work yeah. with the company and we'll give them the same, you know, 76 Capital, you know, everything that we, we've got, but it's a different type of relationship that we currently would have with a, with a portfolio company. So that's the way we've addressed these types of things. And you know, we're just super excited about all the entrepreneurs that we've been able to back over the last several years. Awesome. Well, look, guys, uh, we're at the finish line for today. This concludes the Q2 Investor Vibe Check. Thanks for bringing good energy to it and then some fantastic perspective. Um, for folks listening, please let me know what you thought of this format. If there's a good response to it, we'll do it again at the end of Q3. But for now, Wayne, Chris, Davis, all the best to you guys. Thanks so much. Thanks, Jesse. Thanks, Jeff.